Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to uh, Season 1, Episode 14, otherwise known as uh, Episode 114. Uh, Chapter 13 of The Ambitious Card. It is. It is. And what's uh, that's a very lucky number for us, number 13, chapter 13, because for just uh, this one time, we're going to step away from magic a little bit uh, and dig uh, deeper into Uncle Harry's comedy album collection, uh, which is uh, when he goes to Akashic Records and Eli is talking uh, with Ariana. Harry is happily going through the bins of the used albums and coming away with his his favorites, which is what I used to do. Uh, all the time at Orfolk Jokopus Records and other record stores. So it's very much me being Uncle Harry I knew that. Uh, in going through the comedy albums, because what he's looking for are people that he had opened for, which you might go, well, wait a second, a, a magician opening for a comedian or a comedian opening for a magician? Uh, yeah, there was much more of a mix. I mean, if, when it comes to being on Ed Sullivan, of course, he would have a couple comedians and sometimes a couple magicians. But also in the old club days, even in the somewhat newer club days, uh, and I remember hearing recently the comedian Dana Gould was talking to our friend Rob Zabrecki and talking about Dana's career as a comedian. And he said, Rob, I have to ask you, I, I remember in the uh, 90s, I'd go to comedy clubs and I'd see pictures on the wall of all the comedians. And there was a magician named Max Maven. Was, was he a stand-up comic? And Rob explained, no, Max was very big on the comedy club circuit doing his mentalism act. So there really is a mix of comedy magic, and it isn't unlikely that uh, all the people that Harry talks about uh, having performed with on one stage or another are ones that he would have actually done that with. Yeah. It, here in Minneapolis, uh, the Rib Tickler was uh, yep. a venue where both magicians and uh, stand-up comics uh, performed together on a nightly basis. And I, I, I really like that combination. I think uh, the... Uh, the combination of somebody doing magic followed by somebody doing comedy or somebody doing comedy followed by somebody doing magic is uh, terrific. I think it's a yeah. great combo. And and you, with your background in comedy and Dudley Riggs, I know we talked last time about a, a favorite comedy clip of yours from Steve Martin's Let's Get Small album that got you into a bit of trouble. What was the story behind that? Yeah, you know, I went to a Catholic all boys military academy for high school. And um, we, uh, those of us that were in the theater department and the stage crew had our own little office, our little clubhouse, if you will, upstairs on the second floor off the stage. It used to be a like a costume room. We cleared that out, put some desks in it, and we would study up there. And I put that study in air quotes, of course. And uh, we'd hang out up there before school. We weren't supposed to go there during school, but we did. And, and then we'd be there after school, uh, you know, hanging out. And we were tasked always with um, setting up for any assembly that is either an all-school assembly or if it was a, uh, a multi-school assembly, because there was uh, an all-girls Catholic school across the field from us. And we sort of mingled. Those two schools have since merged into one school now, but in my day, they were separate entities uh, and there was mingling, but very, very carefully did we mingle with the girls because that's the way it was back then. But we absolutely devoured Steve Martin's Let's Get Small. Just devoured it, uh, played it constantly in our little office, you know, we'd study to it, we'd laugh to it. There'd be parts where we, every pens would go down while we'd wait for the one bit we really love. We'd laugh, we'd go back to work. 
So uh, we, as a stage crew, were tasked with setting up uh, the Midwinter Queen Assembly. And this was a multi-school event. Uh, girls from uh, the girls' Catholic school, uh, our guys from, from our military academy, plus uh, dignitaries, parents, uh, friends of the girls who were uh, princesses, and one of them was about to become queen. So it was a pretty big deal, uh, and we were setting up for it. And normally what we would do is simply play music over the sound system uh, that we had. Um, but we were so in to Steve Martin, and Steve Martin was so big. I mean, you it, it's hard to remember just how absolutely huge he was at that point. He was enormous, and everybody was talking about him. And so we, at, we, at, we were backstage, and somebody said, hey, I'm not going to say it was me, but it could have been. Hey, instead of playing, you know, music, what if we just play Steve? Let's play Let's Get Small. And there were five of us and we stood around and went, is there anything, is there anything in there that it could get us into trouble? No, no, it's good. It's, I think it's good. Let's just, it, we won't get more than, you know, 30 minutes of it. So we won't get to anything on the backside where we could get into trouble, but the first 30 minutes, there's nothing. Let's play that, people get a kick out of it. So we popped the album on and dropped the needle and, and out comes Steve Martin as the parents and the girls and the students are all filing in along with all of the Christian brothers who run the school and uh, the priest uh, who's there for the opening invocation. And I think Instead of me doing it, it would be just better if if you happen to have the clip of Steve Martin doing this bit. I uh, do. Let's just run that right now. And I'll tell you how it ended. Here it comes. Still $4 to get in? $4? <laughs> That's not bad, though. You know, $4 in today's world with inflation and all that. It's like nothing. It's like, gee, I got $4. I think I'll throw it out in the street. Oh, I can come in here for four dollars? Okay. <laughs> what happens? <laughs> See, this is not Las Vegas, you know, this is, in Las Vegas it's fifteen dollars to get in. You know, it's worth it because there's, you know, there's a million people on stage and everything's moving real fast and you can't understand a word they say but it doesn't matter and you just sit there you go, wow, look at the tits. <laughs> I'll bet there's 57 tits. Yeah, so you got to put yourself in uh, uh, 1979 uh, in a Catholic boys military school. About the time when Steve Martin said, oh, I can come in here for $4? Okay we all realized, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, he's about to say something that could get us in trouble. And five guys ran from all parts of the gymnasium to try to get to the disco system to stop it from getting out. But of course, you know, we were just a fraction too late. There must be 57 <laughs> as the needle was scraped over the record. Uh, we did not get expelled, but we all... 
we all got disciplined and we all uh, uh, had to do uh, some corporal works of mercy and some, uh, I don't want to say corporal punishment, but uh, we certainly got detention over it. And um, our parents were called and it was, uh, it was a mess that only uh, uh, a silly Catholic schoolboy like me could have gotten us all into. Well, you know, I had uh, my own encounter with Steve Martin, but it was a live in-person encounter probably very soon after you had that incident. At Northrop? It was at Northrop when we he was performing. There, we, didn't, we were there together, but we didn't know each other. Because I was backstage. Shut up. I will not shut up. Uh, for some reason, I was writing for something. I forget who wanted it, but, you know, he was obviously up and coming. Uh, I'd seen him a couple times at smaller clubs in town. Uh, and so I was at North, which was probably the biggest space that he played. And I was supposed to interview him. And I was told by the promoter, yes, 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 you can talk to him. And then shoved aside. And I really got the sense from the promoter he wanted nothing to do with me. Now, of course, you know, I'm 19, 20 years old, whatever. And, you know, why would he want to have anything to do with me? So I figured I'm not going to be able to get this interview after, after he's just going to be gone. But I know where his dressing room is. I can see it from here and I can see see when someone goes in that he's just sitting there strumming on the banjo. So I walk up and I knock at the door and he opens the door and says, yes. And I said, hi, I was hoping to chat with you a few minutes after the show, but I'm not so sure I can. Can I ask a couple questions now? He said, yeah, come on in. And I have the interview somewhere that I wrote out, but the only thing I truly remember from it was my saying to him, so I see that you're going to be making a movie with Carl Reiner called The Jerk. How do you make that transition from what you're doing here to movies. And he looked at me and he said, not really sure. <laughs> We're going to find out. And um, he did make, obviously made the transition, but he was, he was an extremely serious young man. If any of our listeners have not read uh, his memoir, Born Standing Up, it is the, probably the best book on becoming a stand-up comedian or even a performer, really. I, that concert, uh, the musical opening for him was uh, John Sebastian, wasn't John it? John Sebastian of, of Welcome Back Cotter fame and many other songs, but that, that was the one. And he was being heckled by someone dead center about 15 rows back in beautiful, gorgeous Northrop uh, on the University of Minnesota campus. And he took it right to the end. I mean, this guy was rude and he took it until finally, before he could sing Welcome Back Cotter song, he set his guitar on the stand and he said, all right, pal, why don't you come on up here? Why don't you come on up here? Here's my guitar. Why don't you sing a song for us? Sing one of your hits. Sing one of my hits. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. Sing something for all of us. And it got deadly silent in there. And Sebastian said, there you go, folks. Just goes to show you, you let a monkey climb a tree high enough. He'll show his ass every time. And it was the first time I ever heard that. And we absolutely went crazy for John Sebastian. He sang his final song. He walked backstage. A few minutes later, Steve Martin comes out to gorgeous Northrop, which if you, you know, if you're not from Minneapolis, you don't know, but it's gorgeous. And the first thing Steve Martin said was, oh, when are they going to get me out of these toilets? And then he went to, uh, well, for those of you in the balcony, I've worked up something special. The disappearing dime trick. <laughs> <laughs> all of my buddies, all of my high school buddies were sitting there, you know, wrapped, just absolutely crazy for the man. And I still love him. In fact, we just watched in the backyard uh, as part of our little two-week staycation, um, Father of the Bride. Yeah. Steve Martin, weren't you? Very good. 
He's excellent. And I, I had all the albums. I, I was lucky to have uh, a brother four years older than me, my brother, Joe, who brought home things that uh, he found interesting that uh, I, of course, then found interesting. And so a lot of the comedy albums I listened to as a kid, like uh, by Mort Saul or Bob Newhart or Murray Roman, these are the things that I have Harry mentioned because they're the ones that I remember uh, so vividly from uh, from growing up. So I thought in order to learn more about what Harry was experiencing, who these people were in his career, who are these comedians who are doing stand-up and changing the face of stand-up, we would talk to uh, a comedian and a professor named uh, Wayne Fetterman. Yeah, he's terrific. You know him if you saw him, folks. You, you've absolutely seen Wayne before. He's, uh, he's an actor. He's a writer. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California. Perhaps you've heard of it, USC. He teaches level two stand-up performance and history for the USC School of Dramatic Arts. He mm. hosts the History of Stand-Up podcast. He wrote the book, The History of Stand-Up as well. Not a bad get here, John. One of the most fun interviews we've had so far. I was so sorry you weren't able to be part of it. Yeah, he you, was. Were you was, really? I really. Well, no. I, you would have gotten in the way. You're right. I would have probably muted you halfway through. Who is this ignoramus? This monkey up this tree. Turn him off. He's a great interview because he is fascinated with the subject and all. I've cut out a lot of it, but a lot of it is him saying, "Well, no. What do you think, John?" And. Oh. Yeah, um, which, you know what? You are an expert in this, so it it wouldn't be it's not out of line to one expert asking another I'm expert. Certainly not an expert, but I know a lot. But you know, I I thought my very first question was something I thought was sort of a gimme, and I was wrong because uh, I thought I knew who had produced the first stand-up comedy album. It was Mort Saul. I really knew that. Uh, but the first thing I learned from Wayne Fetterman was that I was both right and wrong about that. The first album recorded, there's some controversy about it, but it's going to be either Red Fox's Laugh of the Party, Volume 1, from mm -hmm. 1956. But in 1955, there was an album of Mort Saul recorded, but it wasn't released until 1960, which was after he had already released another album. Okay. It's a very tough question and a terrible answer, but it would be probably those two guys, I would say, are in the running for the first comedy album would be Red Fox and Mortzal. OK, and the genre that Red would slip into would be a genre that I didn't really follow that much, which was the, the party album. Correct. The party album concept was that these were albums that exactly as described would be listened to at a party, usually an adult party. So it tended to have more what we would call body humor. It wouldn't be explicit the way people speak now on comedy albums and in life. But at that time, it was, yeah, it was it was something. And, and these were usually all on minor labels mm -hmm. that because um, people could still get in trouble for swearing because of something called community standards back then. So a lot mm -hmm. of times in the record store, when there were record stores, you would have to ask for it specifically. It wouldn't be like up in the counter. It wouldn't be in the displayed. It would be like, do you have the new, let's say, Rusty Warren album? Yeah. yeah, she was like a singer who also did sort of body songs and told sort of jokes about, 
you know, breasts and and guys getting laid and things like that. There was a number of them. There was yeah. uh, knockers up being the one I've, I ran across knockers, the most. Sold millions of copies, millions yeah. of copies. Knockers up. Knockers up. Knockers up. It's just hard to imagine these days a party where the entertainment was you all sat around and listened to a record. That's well, exactly. Quaint. It's quaint. <laughs> exactly. It seems like it's. But if you think about it, the power of the comedy album was in the fact that for the first time you were transported to these adult nightclubs or coffee houses or theaters where stand-up comedy was being performed before then you would never hear anything like that you heard there was obviously comedy records but they were usually produced in a studio mm -hmm. so this is this was all this was all something very new and and this was an outgrowth of the the sort of explosion of nightclubs it was a convergence of a number of things because if you think of those first big breakout albums which was of course the red fox and then Mort Saul, and then Shelley Berman, and then a guy named Bob Newhart. Those were kind of like the first ones. So those were all comedians still trying to break through. This wasn't like big Jimmy Durante or Milton Berle or Bob Hope or any of the big nightclub headliners weren't putting out their records. As a matter of fact, there was a big divide between the older generation or let me put it this way, maybe the less established generation and the established guys, because they were making, you know, this is when Vegas started hitting. Right. So these guys. It's like Alan King. In and that's yeah, Alan, Alan King. King was making yeah. whatever, 15 grand a week or 20 mm -hmm. grand a week. And he was like, why should I put my act out for $1.98? It just didn't make any sense not realizing the transformative power of like, oh my God, we get to go to a nightclub here in our living room in Des Moines, but also the promotional value of those albums. So it was a real, there was a real divide about whether to put this stuff out or not. So would there be, would the analog be comedians today doing podcasts in order to build up their audience? So when they do go on the Very road? similar. Yeah. Yes. That's a great, great analogy. Great analogy about standups and technology. It's just a way to get your brand out there so that there is an audience 100%. When, you, when you show yes. up in town. Yes, okay. you got that. At that point with Mort Saul, he is a contemporary at that point with Lenny Bruce. They're running kind of the same track, right? Um, not, they're there at the same time. Lenny Bruce is not as successful as Mort Saul was at this time. Like you said, Mort Saul started touring with a jazz band, the Dave Brubeck trio or whatever that was. And then he also got fame for kind of doing comedy in this new style, whereas Lenny Bruce was still, he was playing strip clubs uh, in Los Angeles. So Lenny Bruce was primarily a Los Angeles act. It's a little later, okay. while Morsal was a little more famous. And Morsal was really championed by local San Francisco writers at the, the papers. And he just became a thing. It just mm -hmm. became like, oh, this is you don't have to be in a tuxedo. You don't have to be doing mother-in-law jokes. You don't have to be doing any of these things that people would see in Vegas. It's like, oh, this is powerful, very powerful. 
ABC just announced that they were going to do 12 spectaculars on the Civil War, one a month. There's a big interest in that in this country. And are people who keep sand tables and little soldiers and everything. So, uh, really, you know, so they're going to do 12 spectaculars in color, tracing the history of the Civil War, one a month, which is pretty ambitious. And uh, that cost a lot of money, no matter how they did it, you know, whether they did it on videotape, the new process, or uh, on film. Or if they wait six months, they can do it live as a remote. I was thinking about that. <laughs> And that's a real shift from the Catskill comic where they're all named Jackie and they kind of trade the teens. <laughs> yes, there was. There was a number though. There were, there were some Mortys. There yes. were some Mortys. There was some buddies. It wasn't all Jackies. No, but there yes, were a few. They all had that vibe to them. Yes. Yeah. I know at the beginning of uh, Broadway, Danny Rose, when the comics are sitting in the Carnegie yes. Valley. And the one of my favorite one. comics, uh, Corbett Monica, uh -huh. is talking and he's telling about a joke that he tells that died the other night. Morty, I try Miami jokes. I don't know what works anymore. Why? What happened? Well, you know, I got that big Miami joke that yeah, I do. Okay. You know, you know about the hotels being expensive, and right? How much it costs to stay, like one hundred and fifty dollars a day for a sleeping room. And I said to the clerk, "What's cheap?" He said, "I got a room for ten dollars, but you got to make your own bed." And I said, "I'll take it." So I gave me a hammer and a board and some nails. And that's the joke. You know, yeah, it's a good joke. It works. Good joke. It's been working for years. Last night it died. Really? Died? I tell you, more. The audience sat there like they were an oil painting. I don't know why. It always works when I do it. You do that joke no, all the time. Maybe that's where I got it from. <laughs> and there was this, this understanding, I thought, that the jokes were kind of interchangeable. And you would, like a magician nowadays, will talk, if the two magicians are on the same show, they'll talk beforehand about, you know, we don't want to overlap tricks. And comics, I thought, used to have that same sort of discussion. If they're both on the bill, they'd say, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, you're not going to do this. Was it true that, was, that they just sort of traded stuff back and forth and it wasn't that personal comedy that Mortzfall sort of invented. First, you know, that is, as a general rule, that is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. There were a number of Catskill comedians that did share material and it, it was all kind of the same persona. Like, I don't know if it was Morty Gunty was that different than Corbett Monica or Freddie mm -hmm. Roman or all of those guys. Yeah. But I, but looking back, I feel like that's a little bit of a uh, generalization because certainly there was there were comedians that were very creative. Like there was a radio comedian called Fred Allen who had a very popular show and his act was not at all interchangeable with what Jack Benny was doing on stage or even what Bob Hope was doing or even what there was a comedian named Gene Carroll who worked in New York City, even what she was doing or what Moms Mabley was doing. So I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that every comedian before Mort Saul had an interchangeable act, wore a jacket and did mother-in-law jokes. But that did exist. Getting back to Bob Newhart, I think yes. I remember you talking on uh, the podcast that when he recorded his first album, that was the first time he had worked in a nightclub. Is that, that is am I correct. remembering that right? That is correct. But up until that point, he had just been, I mean, he must have been doing it. He must have been doing it. He was routine. doing it, but it was more on, he was doing it with his radio buddies. So these okay. were like little radio skits they would do or he would do on his friend's local radio show in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So there were recordings of it that that guy sent to, I, I think it was Warner Brothers Records. And they were like, yeah, oh, look, Mort Saul has this hit album recorded at this little room. 
And then Shelly Berman, based on Mort Saul's recommendation, he has this crazy hit album. <laughs> also, you know, those are both on Verve Records, which was mm -hmm. a kind of a jazz label. And Warner Brothers is like, uh, we're a big company. Let's get on this. <laughs> let's jump on this bandwagon. And so it was just a perfect timing. And they sent him down to uh, Houston, Texas, to a place okay. called the Tidelands. And it's incredible because he wasn't even he wasn't the headliner. He was like opening for a singer or something. It's almost it's mind blowing because the whole thing about stand up comedy, at least when I was starting, was Oh, it's going to take you five years just to find your voice or find your own point of view or your own rhythm. And now here was this guy right out of the gate recording an album that dominates the charts in such a powerful way that that album wins the record of the year, beating out like Frank Sinatra, beating out the music acts. That's how big that album was. This is a telephone conversation between Abe and his press agent just before Gettysburg. Hi, uh, Abe, sweetheart, how are you again? How's <laughs> <laughs> Gettysburg? Sort of a drag, huh? <laughs> well, Abe, you know them small Pennsylvania towns. <laughs> you seen one, you seen them all. <laughs> All right. Uh, listen, Abe, I got to know it. What, what, what's the problem? You're, you're, you're thinking of shaving it off. Uh, Abe, uh, don't you see that's part of the image? Right, with the, with the shawl and the stovepipe at the string tie. You, you don't have the shawl. Uh, where's the shawl, Abe? You, you left it in Washington. Uh, uh, what are you wearing, Abe? A sort of cardigan? Can I also yeah. tell you a little bit of trivia? I mean, I know sure. you know it from the podcast, but not only does that album win the record of the year and Bob Newhart wins best new artist, but the album was so popular that he rushed out another album, what's it called? The Button, the button Down, Down Mind. Mind Strikes Back. But Strikes Back. Yeah. And that album won best comedy album the same year. There's been nothing <laughs> close to it. Although the only thing close to it was like when Chappelle put out four Netflix specials in one year. Like there would have been nothing like that. So. And that yeah. second, second album is pretty darn good. It is good. It is yeah. pretty good. The other one that I'm going to pull up that I know yeah. Uncle Harry would have opened for would be a guy named Woody Woodbury. Yes. Out of Florida. I found a number of his albums. And they're oh, just. Yes. Uh, they, they were huge sellers. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he straddled the world between the party record Mm -hmm. and the traditional comedy record. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree. That Yes, absolutely agree. That's That was his market. And he had his own television show as well. He had a talk show that was sort of based on The Tonight Show a little bit, mm -hmm. like that version. And yeah, no, he was definitely a huge player in early 60s stand-up comedy album boom. <laughs> well, age gets us all, doesn't it? <laughs> We get a little older, we get a little forgetful. So those of you guys and girls in here who are young, you got that ahead if you, the good Lord lets you live that long. But I always say, forget the slander you've heard, forget the hasty, unkind word, forget the trials you've had, forget the weather if it's bad, forget the coffee if it's cold, forget the fact we're growing old, forget those gray streaks in your hair, forget you're not a millionaire, forget those lines around your eyes, 
Forget those phonies in disguise, but remember one thing, because it means a lot. What was it now? Damn it, I forgot. <laughs> in the early 60s, uh, you got Ed Sullivan, Toast of the Town, Ed Sullivan's show. Right. How, how did the Ed Sullivan show help stand-up comics and their albums, or how did their albums get them on the Ed Sullivan show? Was there any connection between the two? Ed Sullivan is really important in the history of the stand-up comedian because he had this very popular show on Sunday night at 8 o'clock on CBS. Mm -hmm. There was this family show that was, despite his limitations as a host mm -hmm. and as a personality, was beloved by the United States. It was, he, he loved stand-up comics. Mm -hmm. And almost every show had at least one sometimes two, sometimes two comics and a ventriloquist. It was like he, there was a lot of work for stand-up comedians. And this was the first time like you really saw a stand-up kind of doing their act, even mm -hmm. though it was in obviously this theater. So it's not quite in the nightclub, but you would see that. And it definitely helped comedian get bookings in my, like Miami beach or the Catskill Mountains or in New York at these big theaters that were called presentation houses. That's like uh, the Roxy or Lowe's or the Paramount. These are big multi-thousand seat theaters. So it was, yeah. So Sullivan was the nightclub comics dream booking. And then when the albums came along and he, this is an interesting, like, again, there was a generational divide we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. This is really where it hit because these, these new wave comedians, they call it. They, despite them being a little more intellectual than the Catskill guys, that they were still trying to get on Ed Sullivan's show. So they would use an album to get there as opposed to a booking at, let's say, the Latin Quarter or the Copa or so wherever, you know, Sullivan and, and his uh, talent bookers would hang out in New York. So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He had all those guys all there. Yeah. No, I know a lot of comedians didn't like doing that show because right before they would go on, they would be like, oh, you can only do four tonight as opposed to the seven. It mm -hmm. usually was a cutting situation. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. What was the first comedy stand-up album that you ever got? It certainly wasn't the Bob Newhart. It wasn't any of those because I'm a little younger. I believe it was an album called Bill Cosby is a very funny fella, right? That's got Noah on it, right? Yes, Noah was his big breakout thing. Yeah. And I guess he had just done The Tonight Show. And yes, I had that album as a kid, but it was more the family had the album and I listened mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. But I do remember my uncle had an early Jackie Mason album that's like, I'm the greatest comedian in the world or something like that. I, so I heard that as well. But no, Cosby was very big in my house. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's hard to talk about him now because he's in jail, but. So uh, a couple more personal questions. Do you have a, anything? A, a, anything. A, 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 you got a, me. I'm here. A, a favorite uh, album or performer from that era of 60s and 70s. I, I really like those George Carlin albums, but I have to say I felt there was a re-release of Woody Allen's three Colpix albums. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have any of those. It was just called. I the nightclub years. Yes, the nightclub, the brown. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. It's... That was the, I would say that was the main one that I was like, oh, this is insanely good. Yes, but it's... I really like those Carlin albums. I even listened to those Richard Pryor ones that had the N word in the title. Mm -hmm. And 
So those, yes. So thank you for asking. Uh, yes, I would say those are the albums that I really fascinated me. But I listened to the, the you know, oh, let me give you another one. I thought the uh, there was a Flip Wilson album that I also enjoyed very much that had the Ugly Baby routine on it. And Geraldine was on it, too. I think he did. I mean, he would always do a Geraldine type voice. There was a routine I remember he used to do about Christopher Columbus and... So Queen, the Queen of the Spanish Queen, uh, Isabel, mm -hmm. that was in the Geraldine voice. It was, the, it was that voice, but it was so great. At 35, he'd gotten out of grammar school. <laughs> he arranged an audience with the Queen, Queen Isabel, Isabel Johnson. <laughs> that was the Queen's name. And she asked him about this America project, and Chris tells her, if I don't discover America, it's not going to be a Benjamin Franklin. Or a Star Spangled Banner in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And no Ray Charles. When the Queen heard no Ray Charles, she panicked. The Queen said, Ray Charles? You gonna find Ray Charles? He in America? Chris said, damn right, that's where all those records come from. So the Queen's running through the halls of the castle screaming, Chris gonna find Ray Charles. He gone to America on that boat. What'd you say? But can we go back really quickly? Sure. Remember I said that I love that Woody Allen album mm -hmm. and that I and that Shelley Berman album, obviously, albums were incredible. Those were all because those guys had seen Mort Saul mm -hmm. perform and were like, oh, I could do this is possible in stand-up. Like this level of an intimate, not not hyper performative style. So both of those guys were inspired to get into the stand up game because of Mortsal. You know, I was lucky enough to meet Mortsal once, and I saw him a couple of times. I saw him on Broadway where he did a one-man show, uh, or I didn't meet him, but I did meet him at the University of Minnesota when he was traveling with Eugene McCarthy, who was running for something at that time. Eugene McCarthy was always running for something. Yes. And I asked him to sign his book, Heartland, which is kind of a memoir, kind of a overview of the 60s. Uh, and his, the response that he gave me when uh, he saw that I had the book, which was not an easy book to find, uh, was essentially with the stand-up comic uh, Joey D says to Eli in the zombie ball when he signs his memoir. And you'll have to look it up to find out what that was. That's right. Or just wait till next year. Well, zombie ball is going to be year six, year oh, seven. Well, hey, get year comfortable, six. everybody. Get comfortable, yeah. <laughs> the stewardess will be around in just a little while with breakfast. Uh, it, uh, it, it really is a fun subject. And I was tickled listening to the interview to find out that some of the albums that are on my sort of list of comedy albums that I listened to as a kid are, you know, considered classics. I did not know all the information about uh, Bob Newhart's Button Down Mind. But Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I just didn't know that. It was his first time in front of a crowd doing that. You and did. it's amazing. It's yeah. just amazing. Yes. We had that album as, uh, when I was growing up as well. Yeah, I too had an older brother. Uh, and one of his favorite albums in the history of albums is Bob Newhart's Button Down Mind. Yeah. So so I got it from my brother. But, you know, how can you looking back on the mutiny? How can you not just think <laughs> that that album is just fantastic? He's a genius. And uh, and I was tickled to hear uh, all the accolades for that album and that follow up album to it, yeah. which I 
which I, I'm going to have to, I'm sure I heard it at some point, but I'm going to have to go back and find it and listen to it again, because, you know, why wouldn't you? He's a genius. Uh, but another one that just tickles me to this day is Albert Brooks, who uh, put out two albums. He put out an album called Comedy Minus One, which is stand up with some other stuff mixed in. And then he put out another album called A Star Is Bought, which is all stuff he did in the studio. But Albert Brooks's stand up is second to none. There was no disc jockey there. All they had was an offstage mic for me to introduce myself. Now, I opened up the dressing room door, the noise doubled. Ricky, Ricky, open the door. Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. The closer I got to the stage, the louder it got. I hold my ears. There was, there was a guy sitting at this light and sound booth, the last human being before the stage. A sign said that above him, last human before stage. Don't feed. And in the midst of this, Ricky, 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 he actually looked up and said, your name Richie? No, it isn't. They're gonna kill you. And someone uh, kind of who's between those two generations uh, would be Dennis Miller and his White Album. Just line for line, you're not gonna find a funnier album. Dennis Miller is uh, one of my favorites. We have parted ways yeah. uh, politically, but uh, I saw him live at the Guthrie here because I'm a an enormous fan of Dennis Miller uh, and his work. And uh, uh, when he got to that stage, he took out a, he reached into his pocket and pulled out some yellow legal pad paper and unfolded it on the stool before he did anything. And then he looked up at us and said, what? I used to host a TV show. Now I'm back to being a schmuck. I got to have some notes, folks. And, it, and of course, he was great. And uh, uh, yeah, I like him quite a bit. Richard Pryor wanted live in concert. Absolute favorite. They used to run that on a fairly regular basis, a, a Richard Pryor concert film uh -huh. uh, over at the Uptown Theater in Minneapolis here, which played was at when we were younger. It, it was sort of a um, an art house. We'd get some Casablanca. You'd get uh, some music, you know, old stuff. But they used to play that on a fairly regular basis. And so I saw that film whenever they played it, just because uh, Richard Pryor talking about his monkeys and the German shepherds uh, was priceless. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, one more I'll just hit on my list and then we'll yeah. move on to the, yeah, yeah. the real reason we're here, which is uh, the Smothers Brothers, oh. uh, who uh, I have seen perform live, as have you. I've met them. Lovely gentlemen. We both met them. We went backstage and um, Dickie came out of his room and I just said, I wanted to meet you and say hello. And it was nice to meet you. And he said, it's very nice to meet you. Did you want to see Tommy? Yeah. He immediately that, that thought. There together. That's what I remember too. And it sort of broke my heart a little it bit. Did. Because I felt like, no, dude, you're every bit, you're, yeah. it, you're yeah. a team. I don't yeah. want to, it doesn't, don't deflect. And no. then when he told us where Tommy was, do you remember what Tommy said to us when he saw us? I do. He stepped out of his dressing room. He was in his tux. And I believe he said, uh, table for two. That table for two. That's exactly what he said. Yes. <laughs> what a joy. Anyway. That was. That, was, uh, that was just a joy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Good. And the, the Smothers Brothers song, Mediocre Fred, is something that is referenced in this book and nearly all the books and is very important to Eli and very important to me. And I will... Um, I'm not sure if it's out there. I'll post it and I'll just apologize right now. Hey, future listener, if the links aren't working anymore, I'm sorry. YouTube takes things 
down uh, at will. Um, but I'm putting it up for a while anyway. And so I'm sorry if it's been deleted, but we got a lot of links up there for you to look at. Hey, uh, speaking of behind the page in our uh, YouTube channel, you, did you post a, a short segment of Wayne Fetterman? We talked about that. I did. You'll find as a little bonus uh, toward the end of the interview, I said, so uh, you can only take one album on a desert island. What's it going to be? And I was quite surprised by his answer. Um, and I posted his answer up there as well. A, a clip from the album he's talking about would not have guessed it at yeah, all. That's great. That's that's what makes it. And you mentioned Ray Romano, who uh, who it wasn't an album. It was him doing his book, reading his, his book that really tumbled me to Ray Romano. But that was, uh, he, that was a terrific, if you haven't heard Ray Romano doing his book, you should get it and listen to it. Cause it's darn funny. And I think you, if I remember correctly, you called me and said, Hey, we're trying to find somebody for this show that you've hosted. We need a big name entertainer anything come to mind? And I was driving to Duluth listening to Ray Romano. And I said, well, what about Ray Romano? Who? I said, yeah, he's not that well known yet, but he's got a sitcom that's been on TV for a year or two called, you know, everybody loves Raymond. Oh yeah. Uh, and I said, I'll drop the, I'm almost done with the thing. I'll drop it off. And you got him and he did the show. And before you left, I was not hosting that particular show, but before you left to go, I said, say, if, uh, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, uh, you mentioned to Ray, would you, that uh, uh, an Italian in the Twin Cities um, dropped his name and that's why he's doing this gig. And maybe he'd call me on my phone and you said, ah, I'll see what I could do. But I, I just don't think that that's I don't count on it. I said, all right. I was coming home from a wedding yep. and my phone rang and I answered it. And who's on the other end but Ray Romano? Jim, it's Ray Romano. I guess I got you to thank that I'm stuck in this hole in Florida. I said, I'm with your friend, John. That's great. I, where are you? He said you were going to a wedding. I said, I'm coming home from a wedding. Was it an Italian wedding? It was an Italian wedding. Did you stay for the chicken dance? I said, no, we left before the chicken. You call yourself an Italian and you left before the chicken dance? So uh, uh, my little brush with Ray Romano. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of audiobooks, one of the reasons we're here, in fact, really kind of the only reason we're here. Oh, I forgot. We've got an audiobook. We have an audiobook that we should get into. So we're going to be um, listening to Chapter 13. I'll just quickly recap what happened in Chapter 12. That's when Harry talked about finding some more dimes on the ground. Uh, Nathan has asked Eli to sub for him. Uh, in an upcoming show, which will become a plot point. Uh, we go to Akashic Records for the first time. Ariana reads Eli's aura and Harry finds some records. And then at the very end of the chapter, Eli gets a phone call from Franny saying that she thinks she's had a phone call from the killer. The Ambitious Card and Eli Marks Mystery. Chapter 13. Are you hungry? You must be hungry. I've made lunch. These were the first breathless words out of Franny's mouth when I arrived on her doorstep. I had dropped Harry off at Chicago Magic because he had insisted he wanted to open up the shop. In reality, I knew he was itching to put his records on the turntable and take a leisurely trip down memory lane. Consequently, I was flying solo when I arrived at Franny's small, neat bungalow on the edge of Richfield, a suburb that is itself on the edge of Minneapolis. 
Hers was a perfectly nondescript little house, nestled among other post-war bungalows, each unique only in their color and trimmings, as they were all otherwise exactly the same shape and size. For someone who couldn't have weighed more than a hundred pounds, it was clear that Franny seemed awfully interested in eating, as demonstrated by her all-consuming interest in food at the reception. And upon arriving, I was immediately ushered into her tiny but immaculate kitchen and greeted by enough food for a small battalion. Franny walked ahead of me, although flitted would be a more accurate description. The primary color in the kitchen was yellow, with the secondary colors being variations on yellow, making the room feel buttery. The kitchen table was not exactly overflowing with food, but the spread was pushing the edges of what the tabletop could hold. She picked up an empty plate and handed it to me. First we eat, she said with finality, then we'll talk. Eight and a half minutes later, with the shattered remains of a terrific roast beef sandwich in front of me and the last bite of a classic German Minnesotan potato salad hovering on a fork in front of my mouth, Franny resumed our aborted conversation. She set her napkin down and pushed her chair a few inches away from the table. So I got a phone call, she said in a very business-like, just-the-facts manner. About 9.30 this morning, which is early for me, but I was up and about, so I took the call. I finished chewing the potato salad and was contemplating another small helping, but I didn't want to plunge us back into silence. You don't take every call that comes in? I asked. She shook her head. Oh, I couldn't. I'd be on the phone 24-7. Really? I had no idea there was that much demand for phone psychics. Well, I can't speak for the others, dear, but there's that much demand for this one. Her lack of humility on that one topic made me smile. So where do you advertise? Oh, I don't really. I have a lot of regulars. Most of my new clients come via word of mouth. My nephew set up a nice little website for me, so that might be helping, but I don't really know. How long you been doing this? Well, I had the gift since I was a child, but I didn't really start to put it on a paying basis until about 15 years ago. But you don't take calls at any time of day? Nope. I try to run it like a business and keep business hours, like 10 to 6 on weekdays. Some Saturdays I'll take calls if there's nothing else going on. Otherwise, I turn off the phone and turn on the machine, which tells them to try back during business hours. Most of them do. They just keep coming back. Franny, there are a lot of businesses that would kill for that level of customer loyalty. Well, my philosophy has always been that when I work, I work, and when I'm not working, I'm not working. It's pretty simple, really. She saw me eyeing the potato salad dish and gave it a gentle nudge in my direction. Hardly enough left to bother wrapping it up. Why don't you finish it? So anyway, you got a call around 9.30 this morning, I prodded as I scooped the last dollop of potato salad on my plate and then snagged a pickle as well. Yes, a call came in and I answered it. It was a man. I asked for his access code. I interrupted her. Even though I was in mid-bite with the pickle, which was crisp and tart and most likely homemade, access code, what's that? Franny sighed as she scraped the remaining morsels of potato salad off the serving dish and onto my plate. Well, to simplify billing, I belong to a national psychic network. Customer goes online and buys a certain number of credits, which they can use with any psychic in the network. When I take a call, I put the client's access code into the system on my computer, and it deducts it from their account and gives me the credit. 
much easier than the bother of taking credit card numbers over the phone, writing down all those numbers and all that nonsense. I nodded, and she continued. Anyway, I put his access code into the computer, which said he had an hour of credit available, and we started chatting. I asked him if he had any question in particular or if he was looking for a general reading. She had moved the now-empty potato salad bowl away and slid a plate of brownies into its spot. Not wanting to appear rude, I took two. Which did he want? Well, he said he wanted a general reading, she explained, but I could tell from the tone of his voice that he had a particular question in mind. You get so that you can sense that after a while. And eventually, they always get to the specific question, so it hardly matters. So I gave him a general reading. And what did that entail? Fairly typical stuff, nothing too surprising. He's in his late 20s or early 30s. He's a bit lost, has had a bad relationship with his parents. There's trouble with his current romantic partner. He's got some serious issues concerning money. Lost one sibling in his teens, nearly drowned himself when he was four. Allergic to shellfish, misplaced his car keys last week, stubbed his toe this morning. Standard stuff. He told you all of that? She gave me a long look shaking her head like I was a dim child who was not paying attention. No, dear, I told him all that. Really? And it was all correct? Of course. Why else would I say it? It took me a few moments to process this. So how did you know all that stuff about him? She reached over and patted my hand. Do you understand the concept of psychics? Yes, I get that part. It's just that I've never met one with, let's say, that level of reliability. She shrugged. Well, as the saying goes, your mileage may vary. So anyway, did he get to the specific question? Yes, well, he hemmed and hawed a bit, and then he asked if I could see any recent violence around him. I asked him what sort of violence he was concerned about, and then he just let it all spill out. He said that he's been drinking a lot lately, and on occasions has suffered blackouts. He'd wake up and not remember how he got home the night before. He said that someone he knew had been murdered recently, that I'd probably read about it in the news, and that he wasn't at all sure that he hadn't done it. And then there'd been another murder, and he was very much distressed. I had trouble believing I was about to ask this question, but since she'd been correct on so many other things, I figured it couldn't hurt. So what did your... I wasn't sure what word to use... What did your powers, your intuition, your gift, what did it tell you? She took a sugar cookie off the plate on the table and leaned back in her chair. She nibbled on it for a moment and then brushed some fallen grains of sugar off her brown polyester slacks. It wasn't altogether clear, she said slowly, choosing her words with care. I got a sense of intense anger and hostility from him. Those feelings were apparent right away. And there was violence, something fatal, I think. But to be honest, I couldn't nail down whether it had already happened or was about to happen. You can't tell the past from the future? She shrugged. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. It's like when you close your eyes and spin yourself around, you lose your bearings and you're not sure which direction you're pointed. So I wasn't able to give him a definitive answer. But you think this might be our guy? She pursed her lips. I do. He emanated a level of anger and fury that was right below the surface but very powerful. 
I found it very unsettling. I finished the first brownie and could feel the sudden jolt of the sugar racing into my system. So why tell me and not the police? It's simple. I don't think you killed Gray or Bitterman, for that matter, and I understand that they think you did. And I know from experience that they're not going to listen to me, and I suspected that you might. She smiled at me broadly. I returned the smile. Okay, I'll check him out. What's his name? She got up and started to pick up our plates. Oh, I have no idea what his name is. That's your job. He didn't give you a name? She shook her head. I told you, just his access number. And you couldn't, you know, I gestured vaguely with my hands. She gave me a quizzical look. Couldn't what? You know, do the psychic thing. She laughed. Do the psychic thing? You have so much to learn. She shook her head as she sat down across from me again. Names are transitory, something we're using in this incarnation. They're not attached to our spirit. It's like when you give a dog a name, and then you give the dog away and the new owner changes the name. It's still the same dog. The name is transitory. If you want, dear, I could lend you some books to read. You've got a lot of catching up to do. Maybe later. But this network you belong to, they would certainly have a record of his name, right? She smiled patiently while I spoke. Yes, dear, but let's think it through, shall we? If he actually is a killer, I doubt he'd have much compunction about also stealing a credit card number and lying about his name, don't you think? I nodded in agreement. Good point. I sat back in my chair, trying to think of a good next move and coming up short. Franny returned to the sink and added more dishes to the pile, then turned and leaned against the counter. There was one other reason I called you, she said tentatively. I looked over at her. She seemed a bit nervous. I waited for her to continue. When I was doing the reading and I got the image of violence, another image came up as well. What was that? I saw you, an image of you. It was very unnerving. She let this sink in. If you don't mind, I think it would be best if I did a complete reading of you as well. Are you up for that? Although her voice was quiet, it had a real strength and intensity behind it. I nodded slowly, not really sure why I was agreeing to this. Good, she said. Let's get started. I feel stupid, I said. Is this really the only way it works? Sorry, dear, Franny said, her voice sounding tinny through my cell phone. I'm a phone psychic. I work on the phone. If you want, you could go sit in your car. No, I'm okay. I was sitting on a creaky wooden swing in Franny's backyard, my cell phone to my ear, wishing that I had thought to bring my jacket along when she thrust me out of the house for the reading. I folded my arms close to my chest and stamped my feet on the green and brown lawn in a vain effort to warm up. The swing rocked lazily in response to my movements. Looking around the yard, I noticed it was full of curious knickknacks. On my left was a small flock of plastic geese that lined the garden on one side. A series of wind chimes in various colors, shapes, and sizes hung from the eaves, providing a constant tinkling sound in the background. At the corner of the swing sat three ceramic frogs looking up at me quizzically. I returned the look and turned toward the back of the house where I could see Franny, a cordless phone in her hand, looking out at me from her yellow kitchen. 
She gave me a little wave, then I waved back without enthusiasm. I looked at my hands. They were starting to turn pink from the cold. Are you ready? she asked. I nodded. I said, are you ready? I looked back at the window and saw that Franny had turned away. Yes, I said, trying to keep my teeth from chattering. All set. Okay. There was a long pause, and I could hear her breathing softly through the phone. Finally, her voice came through again. I think I've got you, but let's make sure that I'm focusing in on the right person, she said. It's always embarrassing to do a reading and find out that you've got the wrong person. Yes, I agreed. I can see how that might be awkward. There was another pause, and then she sighed, a soft and sad sigh. Oh, your parents died when you were ten. I'm sorry, Eli. This took me a little by surprise. Thanks, I said, not really sure of the proper response in this situation. It's okay. The first thing I see is a new opportunity, she continued. A way to rejuvenate your enthusiasm is coming up very soon. Does that make any sense? The only upcoming opportunity I could think of was filling in for Nathan at a kid's birthday party, which I didn't foresee as being a particularly rejuvenating event. It does, I said, maybe. Good. Now, let me see. Another pause, during which all I could hear was her soft breathing. As I mentioned at the memorial service, I don't see you directly involved in Gray's death or the death of Dr. Bitterman, although you are connected. Connected, but not involved, if that makes any sense. Another long pause. Although I was cold, what I was hearing was so intriguing that I had almost forgotten to shiver. I also see more connections coming up. A connection to something violent and you're standing right next to it. She paused again, and for several seconds, all I could hear was her light breathing and the sound of the breeze through the wind chimes. And darkness, she said finally. I see darkness, and I hear, I think it's munchkins. Isn't that strange? Munchkins, how funny. Another pause. That's all I've got. Does any of that make sense? I wasn't sure how to answer because I really had no clue what anything she had said meant. Before I could mumble any sort of response, she spoke again. Oh, one more thing. I see a romance, a new romance. It's coming to me in the form of a light, but it's odd. It's like one of those neon signs. It's flashing on, then off, then on. I'm guessing that would suggest ambivalence on someone's part. Does that make sense? I suppose so. In fact, I think I can point to ambivalence as a prevalent theme with most of my past romantic partners. I waited to see if there was more coming, but she was quiet. Can I come in now? I asked. Yes, dear, of course. You must be freezing out there. A cup of hot tea later, and I was back to normal, temperature-wise. Franny insisted on wrapping up a couple of brownies to go, and she was just showing me to the front door when she stopped suddenly, her hand resting on the doorknob. She stared at the far wall in her living room for a long moment, a look of deep concentration suddenly appearing on her face. 
I looked where I thought she was gazing, but saw nothing amiss. The living room was small and comfortable, and the furniture, like Franny herself, had a certain ageless quality to it. The far wall was decorated with two long shelves that were lined with presidential plates. It appeared to represent every American president since FDR, but on closer examination, I noticed that both Richard Nixon and George Bush II were noticeable in their absence. I just remembered something, she said, about the caller this morning. This jolted my attention away from the plates on the wall. What was it? She chewed on her lower lip for a moment before continuing. He had an odd way of speaking. He ended a lot of his sentences, practically all of them really, with the phrase, know what I mean? It's like a verbal tick of some kind. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? She looked up at me, searching my face to see if this tidbit was of any assistance. Does that help you at all? Yes, I said, knowing exactly what she meant. As a matter of fact, it does. So, you know, we talked a lot about uh, stand-up comedy in this week's show. We're going to do a little of the same uh, in the next episode because we get to chat with the great Jay Johnson. So much fun to talk with him. Such a big fan of his. uh, And he is going to, he was kind enough to talk with us about his close friend harry anderson uh who i think the world of and it's just so much fun to hear him talking about somebody he obviously loved it was really nice of him to spend that time we'd learned a lot of stuff i didn't know about their relationship and about harry um i had the good fortune of working with jay johnson a number of times in the corporate setting and i will say one time um after a, a technical rehearsal, one of my coworkers came up to me and she said, why is Jay so mean to you? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? She said, he just insults you constantly. And I said, Jay Johnson has never said a mean thing to me ever. He couldn't be sweeter. She said, well, the puppet is saying, and I said, well, that's Bob. That's not Jay. <laughs> anyway. Um, so anyway, that's it for this episode. Uh, Don't forget to check out the show notes. Uh, We've got links to a lot of stand-up comedy, which we hope is still there, including Red Fox, uh, Rusty Warren, Mort Saul, including that first album in its entirety, and that nice clip uh, on our YouTube channel of Wayne Fetterman talking about his favorite comedy album. It's surprising and delightful at the same time. So rate us when you can. Subscribe to us, whether you want to or not. And we'll see you on the next episode of Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.